All right, so Ben Franklin once quipped that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. Yeah, they were unanimous in that too at the first service, right? Illinoisans know about that. Uh, I would add an amendment to that and say there are two more certainties in life that are also closely related. Number one uh, is the reality of a losing football team in Detroit. I've come to accept that now. Uh, the other one is the presence of suffering. We all know about suffering. Videos, images that are just gut-wrenching coming back from Ukraine every day. In our homeland a couple weeks ago, some early spring tornadoes that caused great damage and loss of life in Iowa. Some wildfires doing the same down in the panhandle of Florida. Have prayers coming in each week for St. Peter family and friends and people facing surgeries for cancer and artery problems. Bodies that are deteriorating as we continue to age. We all know and experience suffering. In fact, it is the presence of suffering in this life that has caused many people to reject the Christian faith. Steve Jobs, for example, said that it is the presence of suffering that keeps him from believing in the presence of a loving God. Yet it is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere is it in the Bible that, that there will be any kind of pain-free or, or hardship-free life, but the, the Bible acknowledges from Genesis 3 all the way to its end in Revelation, this, this presence of hardship and suffering in our life, that our world is fallen, that we live on a broken planet, that we are in bondage to sin and death and decay and an ever-working evil one to exert his demise. And yet it's also in the presence of the reality of our suffering that God comes to us today in the book of Jeremiah and God gives us a new lens through which we can view the suffering in our life and in this world. Before we dive into those words, I just want to prime you a little bit for that, that whenever God came to a prophet, whether it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, God's prophets had two functions among his people. Number one, they were foretellers. They would tell events that were to come, that God revealed. But even more so than that, God's prophets were foretellers meaning they spoke God's word and how it applies to the then and there of today. 
And one of the neat things is, as his prophets gave foretelling and foretelling is that they would also bathe those in some very powerful image-based preaching. Right? Because image-based preaching helps God's word stick in the ears and lives of his people. For example, these are just some of the image-based teachings in Jeremiah. Uh, in chapter 13, God tells Jeremiah to take rotten loincloth. Right? In our day, we would translate that fruit of the loom. <laughs> right? Jeremiah, go take your fruit of the loom and bury them behind a rock near the Euphrates. <laughs> Jeremiah can only imagine, it's like, okay. And then later, God sends Jeremiah back. <laughs> he says, now, Jeremiah, I want you to go dig up that fruit of the loom. And Jeremiah goes and digs it up, and, and Jeremiah's like, God, it stinks, and it reeks, and it's rotten, and it's not good for anything. And God said, exactly. In the same way, I'm going to ruin the pride of Judah. And then in chapter 24, God gives this picture to Jeremiah of good figs and bad figs. And the good figs are the ones that submit and go to Babylon. The bad figs are the ones that try to resist. In chapter 27, God tells Jeremiah to build a yoke, like an oxen yoke. Okay, God. And then Jeremiah, put your neck in it. <laughs> so Jeremiah is wearing this yoke around Judah. It has another hole in it. And the image is that Judah... You need to yoke to Babylon because that's where you're going to go. And yet at the, near the end of Jeremiah, God tells him to go buy this field. Now, why would Jeremiah go buy a field in Judah if the Babylonians were going to come and destroy it all? It'd be like going to Kiev today and buying a nice pasture land on the outskirts. It wouldn't make sense. God told him to buy the field as an image of hope that after Babylon, God in his mercy was going to bring them back. And so that field would have great value. Today, as God gives us a new way to look at our suffering, he uses another powerful image. Let's take a look in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah says, the word of God came to me, arise, go down to the potter's house. There you're going to hear my word. And so Jeremiah says, okay, see where this one's going to go. <laughs> so he goes down to the potter's house, and, and what do you know? There is a potter there working at his wheel. And he notes that the, the vessel the potter was making of clay was marred in the potter's hand, so the potter returned to the wheel and made it into another vessel that was pleasing in his eyes to make. And then God now in these next verses is going to give Jeremiah the life point application. God says, the word of God came to me. Am I not able to do to you as this potter, O house of Israel? Behold, like clay in the hand of the potter, 
Thus you are in my hand, O house of Israel. So God in the midst of some very, very dark days in Jerusalem and Judah gives Jeremiah and the people of God and even us today this powerful image of the potter working with his clay. And what we're going to do here is look very briefly at six biblical truths that will help shape and reshape our view of suffering in light of this image. The first biblical truth, by the way, that's actually what the potter's wheel looked like. In Jeremiah's day, it had two wheels with a shaft connecting him. With the bottom wheel, the potter would use the foot to turn it and then work with the clay on the top. Remember that image. The first clear biblical truth to our lives today is that God is the master potter. The potter here that Jeremiah sees represents or symbolizes the even greater potter, God. And in multiple places in Scripture we see the very same image used of God. It's the Hebrew word yatsar. It means to form, fashion, shape, or it could just be translated as potter. So we're told in Psalm 95 that God's hands pottered the dry land. Land we walk on, land we're sitting on right now. In Genesis 2.19, God pottered every beast and every bird of the air. In Genesis 2, 7, God pottered man from just the dust of the ground. And even to Jeremiah at the beginning of his call, God says, Jeremiah, before I pottered you in your mother's womb, I knew you. So if God is your master potter and God is my master potter, then what are we in this image? That means that we are the clay in his hands. That you are clay in the hands of your God. And I am clay in the hands of my God. And there's no better, there's no more privileged place to be, is there, than clay in the hands of a master potter. But as we read through this image today, did you catch something in the text? Something very profound. That as Jeremiah was watching this potter work at the wheel, the potter had clay in his hand, but he noticed it was marred. It was flawed. But rather than just Throwing that clay away or discarding it and getting new clay, the potter took that marred clay back to the wheel and continued to rework and reshape it. 
There's big theology there. Even though we are all marred and flawed clay, right? God doesn't have any other kind of clay to work with, does he? God doesn't go like in the trash can and dispose of us. But he brings us back to his wheel and continues to rework and reshape even such marred clay. Where's the flaw? It's always in the clay. The flaw is not in the skill of the potter, or certainly not in the potter himself. But the flaw is inherent in all of the clay because of our sinfulness. And if you've ever worked with clay, maybe in a high school art class, you know that even though clay is inherently flawed, as you're working it, you can run into more flaws, right? You can get air pockets that have to be worked out. You can get debris in there that has to be removed. You can get a bulge inward. You can get a bulge outward. You can get a chip or a crack. And so you always have to keep working it. The clay can even start to dry out. Yet still, There's only one kind of clay the potter can't work with. And what kind of clay is that? Clay that's already hardened. Flawless, I can do. Marred, I can work with and reshape. Only the hardened clay cannot be used on the wheel. And that is why Scripture says in several places today, if you, if I hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts against it. Because to have a hardened heart is to have hardened clay. But even when God's word is uncomfortable, even when God's word is convicting of something that needs to be removed in our life, it's still having a heart that is open and humbled and receptive to his word. Working with marred clay, there is another powerful note of theology here. And that is the truth that reshaping on God's will is painful. But it is also always purposeful. So in Jeremiah's day, God was going to fashion his people for disaster. He had to squeeze and push the pride and their hardness of hearts and unwillingness to turn from their gross idolatry. He had to squeeze that out. And so God would send his people to Babylon, but yet that pain 
that hurt was purposeful and that God was going to soften their hearts once again through that hardship so that they would be soft and pliable once again to his words and ways. And the potter can do the same in our walk with him. Right? Sometimes the potter has to push on that clay. And sometimes he has to squeeze it. And sometimes the potter even gets a utensil and cuts into it while it's going around the wheel. And sometimes the potter has to go and start shaping again. Or maybe he has to remove something that hurts because it does not belong in the clay. Yes, the reshaping of your life and my life can be very painful as God works to reshape us into his will and plan. But notice that the reshaping work of God is also purposeful. It's purposeful. Remember who the potter is. He is the master potter. We can't see it because we can only see what's going on in our lives right now, but God sees the master plan. He knows the finish end. He is working and squeezing and shaping and cutting away in your life and my life for us to be. But it's not just where he's taking us. It's also the reshaping and transforming He's doing on his wheel today to make us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Even though it's being reshaped and squeezed, and pressure, and some of it cut away. Where is the clay? It's always in the hand of the potter. And so are you. Even when God is pushing and squeezing and removing your life remains in the hand of the potter. And there's another very remarkable characteristic about our God as he works with us on his wheel. And that is the mercy <laughs> and patience of the potter as he works carefully with such flawed and marred clay. In fact, one of the greatest self-revelation God gives about himself, he gives to Moses when God is revealing himself to him on Mount Sinai, 
This is God's self-declaration about who he is as our God. God says, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering with that clay, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands of generations and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we have a God even in our flawedness that never quits, never gives up at the wheel or walks away, but he continues in his unfathomable mercy and patience to work us according to his will and plan. And that means this. It means that you and I today can trust his handiwork in our life that even when it hurts, even when he's squeezing and shaping and cutting away, he knows the beautiful peace. Not just now that he wants to continue to shape and mold you into, but he knows the end. And that for eternity, for eternity, he is going to make you this perfect vessel that is going to fully reflect the glory of his son. And so each and every day, as we continue to turn on his wheel, we can trust the potter who always has you and me in his merciful hands. In just a moment, we're going to put some questions on the screens when we get to upper room time, but I just want to tip your heart and mind to that now. My first question is going to go like, where has God been reshaping your heart and life? And secondly, how does this text change your view of suffering? And then lastly, a faith challenge. In faith, are you and I willing to pray today, God, do whatever it takes today on your wheel to make me more like Jesus, humble, good, kind, patience, love, joy, whatever it is, God, make me more like that today. Amen.